so last week, Andy and I made a quick trip, <laughs> it was not quick at all, uh, uh, unexpected trip down to South Texas to uh, help my cousin prepare for an estate sale. Her husband passed away a few months ago, and she's been like just overwhelmed with the decisions and the difficulties and the to-do lists that she has to get the house ready to sell and all that stuff. And so um, my job down there was to clean out the garage area and sort everything that had been accumulating over the years, uh, what she wanted to keep, uh, what needed to go to the dump, what needed to be set aside for the estate sale. And and so basically I walked into this kind of garage space that basically had two massive piles of stuff. And and it kind of as I stood, it was like a little path in between to walk through the garage. And, and I stood there looking at it and I could tell um, just by kind of looking at these piles that there were some things that were good and, and probably would would be, we should be able to sell those things and make some decent money off them. And th- th- there was a lot of stuff in there also that was um, d- uh, bad and just needed to be thrown out. Now, this is uh, South Texas and, and it's dry down there. And so I don't know why this is the case, but any hand tool that he left out, every screwdriver, every crescent wrench, every socket, uh, uh, every opening box and wrench was rusted. And, uh, you know, who wants to use rusty tools? So all this stuff that just was kind of left out. But then there were like really nice tools, like tools, like professional tools. And he was not a professional um, guy. So they're like tools uh, uh, kind of above his level of owning. So it's like, um, for me, I'm used to build houses. And so I'm, I'm looking like, man, these are really nice tools. And so I just sort that stuff out. And, and so I, I got to thinking, um, have you ever, like, you, you've got a project that you know needs to be done, but it is kind of overwhelming. And, and it's a big project and you don't really know wh- where to start or how to start. And, and so our default is, uh, is what? Uh, not start, right? <laughs> and so I don't know how many times she said, I walked out to the garage and I looked at all this stuff and I just didn't know what to do. And so I walked back in the house. And so here I am standing in front of these piles of, of just uh, junk and some good stuff and, and having to figure, like I didn't have the option to just go, I don't know where to start. I'm going back inside the house. Like that's why I was there. I had to get this stuff done. And, and I was thinking about how standing in the garage at the beginning of the week, looking at those piles, like it made me think of our kind of trip into the book of Revelation. I was just standing at the, the beginning of the book of Revelation, and you know there's going to be some good stuff, and you know there's going to be some like bad stuff. And, and by bad stuff, I mean stuff that you just don't understand, you just don't get, you don't know how it fits into the story. And, and you know you're going to have to kind of sort that stuff out, but it seems so overwhelming that um, that you just go, eh, like maybe next year. <laughs> I'll start it some some other time. Um, it's just it's too much. I don't get it. I don't understand it. And so, for so many Christians, Revelation is just intimidating, and it's hard to separate what's important from what's maybe not so important. And I think the other thing that's difficult about Revelation is there's so many people speaking into this book or telling us what it means 
or what things stand for. And, and there's telling us sometimes uh, things that maybe we read and they seem kind of minor. We're being told that that's really a major thing when you look at the book of Revelation. And then other things that we think maybe, well, that seems really important. And then somebody comes along and says, oh, that's not very important. And so it's hard to know what to get. And so what we're doing in this series is we're kind of just starting small, we're picking away, we're working our way through the book in order to determine what's most important for us today. So last week we set the stage for the rest of um, Revelation when we discovered that Jesus, the, the lamb that was slain, remember John heard, um, here comes the lion of the tribe of Judah, uh, the king in the line of David, and he turns and he sees the slain lamb, the lamb that had been sacrificed on the altar. And he sees that lamb, and the lamb is able, surprisingly, to open the scroll of God and then lead creation to its ultimate conclusion. And, and we discovered last week that the reason Jesus is able to do that is because he completely trusted God even to his death. Well, this week, we're going to look at what happens as Jesus begins to open that scroll that had been sealed with those seven seals. And each of the seals we're going to find, like, triggers these certain events. There's angels, and there's this, there's beasts, and there's things that happen, and all this kind of crazy, weird stuff that goes on. And the seven seals kind of just trigger all of these things, including more series of sevens. And so we're going to begin to get a peek at what this scroll of God that Jesus has, he's beginning to open, what it has to say about heaven and humanity, and how God is going to once again bring them into perfect unity. So before we jump into that, let's take a minute and pray that God gives us wisdom and ears to hear and eyes to see what really is important as we look at the book of Revelation. Let's pray. God, we thank you again for the opportunity to gather and to worship, and, and, and we thank you today for this book of Revelation. Even though for many of us this book has seemed really intimidating, uh, frightening, we just we don't know what it means, we have a hard time figuring out, like, is this supposed to happen, is it not supposed to happen, what is uh, literal, what's figurative, and, and we're getting all these different voices and so, God, we just pray that through this series and this morning as we um, dive into the next few chapters, that you just give us clarity. You give us eyes to see and ears to hear what's really important, what we need to know today for our situation, our time in this world, and our time as your church. And so, God, um, help us, give us direction, give us insight, um, and just love us through this process. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're at the point in Revelation now where it's really, really easy for us to get kind of caught up in, in the weeds of the book, we'll say. So there's a whole bunch of things that are going to start happening now as we look at, at chapter 6. And a lot of that stuff, um, we just don't really have context for it in our day and, and age. We're going to hear a lot of things um, that we're just like, what in the world is John talking about? This seems absolutely crazy. In fact, there are things that we're going to read in the in the coming weeks that that, that we're going to look at. We're going to. There's just no way. Like that just doesn't make any sense. The seven-headed dragon with all of the horns and the crowns that comes up out of the sea. We're like, what in the world is that? We don't like. There's no context for that stuff. 
Um, and, and so it's really easy to get like bogged down in the weeds of the book, trying to discover what the meaning is behind every color, behind every number. Um, and so I'm just going to, I'm just going to remind you, let's not get bogged down in those weeds. The first followers of Jesus, the, the, the men and women that John was writing to, they were being hunted and killed because of their faith in Jesus. They needed encouragement and they needed hope that their God was the biggest and the strongest. And so as we read Revelation, remember that's the situation that the early church is in. And so some of the language that we're going to read about conquering and about might and power and all these things is John helping people understand that no matter what kind of terrible situation they were in, God is bigger. God is better. God is um, stronger. And so um, in Revelation, John uses the number seven uh, a lot. You'll hear it just come up over and over again. In fact, if you remember, you go back to week one of our series, uh, Jesus is standing among seven lampstands and he holds seven stars in his hand. And we begin to see like almost every chapter, there's these sevens that um, pop up. And I think there's two reasons that number seven appears so often. And, and because again, it's easy to get caught in the weeds, I want you to understand what the, what the context is, why John is using the number seven uh, so often. So uh, the first reason is that it reminds his, uh, his readers about the seven days of creation. And, and how God, uh, God on the seventh day rested because his work of creating was done. You can go back to Genesis chapter 2 verse 3 and read about that. And so God, God blessed the seventh day. He made it a day of rest. And the seventh day then, uh, in Jewish history, begins to repeat. There's uh, every seventh day they're supposed to rest. Every seventh year, they're supposed to let the land rest. They're not supposed to sow and, and, and reap. They're not supposed to till the ground and plant, uh, plant their crops. Uh, every um, 50th year, seven sevens, um, then all of the property goes back to the people who it originally belonged to. Like there's all of these things tied into seven and it's all about rest us resting every week, us resting from our work, and really it's all about trusting God. Do I trust God enough to take a day off and realize that even if I don't work to provide for myself and my family, that God will provide for me? Uh, every seven years when they let the land grow, go, go fallow, they have to trust that God is going to provide enough in the sixth year to last them until the end of the eighth year when the harvest comes again. And so it is all about trusting God. These sevens that John is using is all about um, trusting God and trusting what he says. Now, it's interesting because this is what Adam and Eve failed at doing. They were to trust God when he said you can eat of any fruit of any tree in the garden except this one tree that's banned. Don't eat of that. And they didn't trust him. They ate it. And, and then we know the story of what's happened. It, it, it's what humanity has failed at over and over again every day since the very beginning. Trust and obey. We have a difficult time doing, doing that. 
And so the number seven reminds us to trust God's plan and trust his purpose. And so that's why John uses the number seven so much, because the Jewish reader, the first century reader, would have understood when they see the number seven, they would have been reminded of the seven days of creation, of resting, and of trusting God. Um, The second uh, reason that John uses number seven is that seven represents uh, completion or wholeness. So, again, Jesus held the seven stars in his, land, in, in his hand. And, and we got that what that meant was that Jesus was in control. He was in complete control of the angels who were in charge of the seven churches. And so there's wholeness. There's completeness there. And he walked among the seven, the seven lampstands. And, and these lampstands represented churches. Now, those seven churches in Asia, they were not the only seven churches. They were not the only churches in Asia. So what John was using the the number seven again to represent completeness or wholeness. And so as he writes to the seven churches, everybody else would have understood that it's not just those seven churches, but it represents every church, the complete gamut of churches, the wholeness of the church. And it's why we're reading Revelation today. If John would have written Revelation only to those seven churches in Asia, They would have read it, they would have passed it around, and it would have not gone any farther. The fact that we're reading Revelation, that we're talking about it today, that it's a part of the canon of of Scripture, is because they understood that the number seven meant complete or whole. And it was for every church, not just those original seven churches. So beginning in chapter 6, John is going to give us three series of sevens. Two of them we'll look at today, uh, the seven seals and the seven trumpets. And then the third series of seven will come in um, in week six when we look at the seven bowls. Now there are three ways, uh, or two ways that we can look at these series of sevens. The, the first one is that we can look at these series of sevens as a literal and linear timeline of Events that either has happened, is happening, or will happen. Like that's the big debate. If, if you believe that these sevens are a literal, linear timeline, so they have a beginning and they have an end. And so you got to finish the first seven and then move to the second seven, then move to the third seven. And when the third seven gets over, that's when Jesus is coming back. If you believe that, then each of these have to happen in sequence. And they follow the other, each one follows the other until, um, until the end comes, referred to by John as the day of uh, the Lord. In fact, the Old Testament prophets talked about this day using that term, the day of the Lord. So that's one way to look at it. I think, uh, along with the folks at the Bible Project, that it's more likely that John is using each of these three sets of seven to talk about the same time period from uh, Jesus' resurrection to his return. Now, we don't know how long that is. We don't know when Jesus is going to come back. Remember from week one, we said Revelation is not about when Jesus is coming back. It's about why Jesus is coming back. So we don't know when that's going to happen. But I think that the series of seven, the three series of seven that John talks about, he's talking about the same period of time from three different angles from Jesus' resurrection to his 
uh, return. And there are several reasons um, for this. Uh, the first one is that each set of sevens is nested in the previous set. So the seven trumpets come out of the seventh seal. And the seven bowls come out of the seven trumpets. So they're all kind of connected um, this way. They're like nesting dolls. And so you open one and then there's another one and it comes out. And there's another one and it comes out. And so these are all tied together. The, the other reason, the second reason is that um, each of these sets of seven, they all end the same way. Each of them, they all end between the sixth seal and the seventh seal where the day of the Lord happens. So we're, we're reading through in chapter uh, six and in eight where the seven seals are open and we get to the end and it's the day of the Lord and there's earthquakes and the sky is ripped apart and there's all this crazy stuff and lightning and it's terrifying. And then we get to the end of the seven trumpets and, and guess what? There's earthquakes and the sky is ripped apart and there's lightning and it's the day of the Lord and it's crazy. And we get to the end of the seven bowls and there's lightning and earthquakes. And it's the day of the Lord. And it all kind of repeats. They all end up in the same place. Uh, and so I feel like how can that be a linear timeline unless the day of the Lord happens three times? But nobody thinks that. <laughs> So it seems odd to me that we would even consider that as an option. Uh, there's also a third thing here. The first four in each series, so the first four seals, the first four trumpets, the first four bowls, they all remind the reader of some way that God showed up in Israel's history. If you go back and read uh, Zechariah, Old Testament prophet, uh, I believe it's chapter 1. Guess what he's talking about? There are four horsemen on four different horses, and each of those horses is a different color. And so as the first century reader reads Revelation chapter 6, and the first um, four seals are open, and it's this horseman, and he has this colored horse, they would immediately remember, wait a minute, Zechariah wrote about this thing. Well, what was going on when Zechariah wrote uh, the first chapter of Zechariah. What was going on? The people were in exile in Babylon. They were oppressed by the Babylonian people. They had been taken from their homeland. They'd been forced to live in a foreign country. They were surrounded by um, idolatry and, and, and worship of other things. And all, like nothing good was happening. And Zechariah sees this vision of these four horses. And what was God trying to convey? I'm in charge. I'm going to overthrow the Babylonian nation and you are going to be restored back to Jerusalem. Zechariah's vision was a vision of hope and encouragement to the people that you will not be in exile forever. I will bring you out and I will restore you to your homeland. So we um, get to the seven trumpets and the first four trumpets in that series of seven are plagues. There's darkness, there's locusts, there's, uh, uh, there's bitter water, there's four plagues. And so the first century reader would go, wait a minute, I, I feel like I've heard this somewhere before. And so they go back to Exodus and they read about the plagues that God delivered on the Egyptian people. Why? 
Because the Israelites were enslaved by a nation that was not there. They'd been taken away uh, from their homeland. They were enslaved there. They were surrounded by idol worship. Uh, They were oppressed. There was great injustice there. And God was showing up on their behalf to deliver them out of this powerful, mighty nation and bring them back to their homeland. And so if you're a first century follower of Jesus, if you're being hunted and killed because of your faith in Jesus, remembering these stories of how God showed up in big ways in the past, uh, 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 fighting against oppressive governments, that would give you hope, wouldn't it? Would give you hope that, that if he did it then, he can do it again. And so these series of sevens that we have, I think they're talking about the same period of time, and I think they're all connected, and they're all meant to give the first century people hope that God was involved, that he knew what was going on in their lives, and that he would eventually show up, he would fight against their oppressors, and he would set all things right. So I don't believe... The terrible things that we see in the seven seals and the trumpets and the seven bowls are literal. I do not believe they are linear things. I think really instead they are reminders to us that the first century uh, and the first century followers that God is capable and able to bring justice to nations no matter how big and powerful they seem. What, what, what have we seen um, recently? Now, I know it's old news because things have, you know, more things to talk about have happened. But I believe that there's still a war going on in Ukraine. Is that right? One of the things that we saw early on in the news coverage was Christians who, who were there trying to help other people, trying to support what was what was going on? They were meeting together for prayer and, and they were having church together, oftentimes in bunkers and, and weird places. What do the people of Ukraine who are following Jesus want to know? They want to know that God is capable and able to bring justice to their oppressors. They're coming together and they're worshiping, knowing that no matter what happens, God is in control and he can drive out the Russians and he can conquer them no matter what. That's what they wanted to hear. And the same is true of the first century believers. God can rescue his people from oppression and from injustice because he's done it before. And this is what the series of sevens would remind people of. God is powerful. So we move through the the seven seals, and as we get to the sixth seal, something really interesting happens that that leads John to this first kind of aside. And so what happens is um, John is going through the series of of sevens, and he gets to the sixth, and, and, and what happens in the sixth seal, what happens in the sixth trumpet is kind of different. Like it doesn't, it's not the same as what was happening in the first five. And then John kind of, it's almost like he, like there's all this action going on and John just kind of steps over here and he addresses his audience. And it's like something that's not going on in the scene that we're looking at. It's something else that's happening. John is seeing something completely different and he's like, hey, I I know that I'm talking about this but I want you to know this as, as well. And so he kind of has this aside. He switches gears. And, and so um, here's the first thing that we read in Revelation 6. 
When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood. Does that remind you of the, like the day of the Lord, right? I mean, that's what it sounds like. Uh, black as sackcloth, blood. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful, everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and rocks, fall on us, hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne. So, so these are not followers of, of Jesus, right? These are not followers of the lamb. These are people who are afraid in the day of the Lord because they're afraid of what might happen to them. They're hiding just like Adam and Eve hid themselves because they don't know what's going to happen. They're hiding themselves from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come. And here's the question, who can stand? Who can stand? I want you to kind of keep that in your mind, because this is the question that John is going to answer in chapter 7 before moving on to the seventh seal and the actual day of uh, the Lord. He's going to ask the question, who can stand on the day of the Lord? So let's take a look at what John um, hears and then what John sees in chapter 7. And remember, um, early on in, in the book, we said this was going to come up again. John hears things and then he sees something different. In chapter 1, he hears this voice and then he, he turns around and it's Jesus standing among these lamps. This is not the same thing that he heard. And then, and then later, um, he hears... This is the line of the tribe of, of Judah. This is a king in the line of David. And when he turns, what he sees is this slain lamb. So there's different things happening. So John says, after I saw this, uh, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. So again, remember, he's talking about the seven seals. And then he pauses and he's going to talk about these four angels that really don't have much to do with, this, with the seven seals. It's, it's kind of separate. These four angels are holding back the four winds of the earth that no wind might blow on the earth or sea or against any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. So um, what that means is like the, uh, the Jewish reader would have understood is like a signet ring. So the um, patriarch of a family would have a ring on his finger and he would use that ring to seal uh, letters and official documents and things like that. So this angel comes up out of the sun with the signet ring of the living God. So he's able um, to enter into deals and make covenants on God's behalf. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and sea. And he said, do not harm the earth or the sea. And then we skip ahead to verse 4. And then I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000. And if you've ever heard anything about Revelation, you've heard about the 144,000. Nobody knows what the 144,000 is. Is it this people? Is it that people? Is it all people? Um, I, I remember as a kid, there's, there's, a, there's a church that, um, that, that believes that only 144,000 people are going to make it to heaven. Um, but they're really big on evangelizing and bringing more people. I'm like, why would you want me in your church? Because I might be a better Christian than you and kick you out of your seat. So I, I don't, I just always had a problem with that. So John hears this number of the sealed people who got this signet ring of, of God, the mark of God on them. 144,000 were sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 
Now, if you're a first century reader, what this reminds you of is the military census that was taken by David uh, in, um, or maybe not David, taken by Moses maybe in, uh, in Numbers, the beginning of Numbers. There's this big census that is taken among all 12 of the tribes of Israel. And um, if you read that list, there is different numbers of people because they only took people between certain ages who were able to fight. If you were too young, you didn't go. If you were too old, you didn't go. And so you had to be uh, in this thing for like the draft and, and they would have this number and some tribes were big and some tribes were little. So there were different numbers for each tribe. But here, John hears the same number for each of the 12 tribes, 12,000 From each of the 12 tribes, 12 times 12 is 144,000. Now, here's what's interesting to me. At this point in time, when John is writing, the 12 tribes of Israel have not been seen in a very, very long time. So um, back in the Old Testament, the northern tribes, the 10 northern tribes of Israel broke away from the two southern tribes of Israel, Judah and Benjamin, who took up uh, possession of the land of Jerusalem and the city of David. The northern tribes then were dispersed and they intermarried and they worshiped other gods and, and, and they became the Samaritans. And if you remember reading in the New Testament, you remember that the Jews hated the Samaritans. But because they, they, they were half-breeds, they weren't full Jewish people. So when John writes this, the 12 tribes of Israel haven't been seen in maybe hundreds of years. They, they really only, Judah and Benjamin, could trace their lineage back to the Old Testament. They kind of had a, a, a cleaner bloodline there. But the other 10 tribes didn't really exist. So for John to say 12,000 of each of those 10 tribes were going to come, people are like, what are you talking about? God must love the Jewish people. But here's something that I, I, I think is, is better. It, it, it seems to indicate that God still loves his people. He's still watching over them. He's still protecting them. He's still involved. They were the ones that he chose. But look at what John sees Look at what John sees when he turns. What he sees is the physical fulfillment of the figurative numbers that he's he's given. So after this, so he heard this number, he looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. Well, what happened in the verse previous? He numbered them, 144,000. That's how many there were. That's what he heard. There's going to be 144,000 sealed. But when he turns and he looks, he sees a great multitude that no one can number. And they don't just come from the 12 tribes of Israel. They come from every nation, from all tribes, all peoples, all languages. And they're standing before the throne, before the Lamb of God. They're clothed in white robes. They have palm branches in their hands. These are people who believe, who follow the Lamb of God, who believe and trust in in Jesus, and it's way more than 144,000. In fact, in a couple chapters, John is going to give another number, 200 million, 10,000 times 10,000, that's 200 million. Um, and, and, and here he says, it's a, it's a number that it can't be numbered, which, which means to me, there's got to be more than 200 million because he, he numbered that. John hears only 144,000, but he sees a multitude so great that it couldn't 
counted that encompasses every person from every tribe and every language and every place on the whole world. Uh, That God would call people from every tribe and every nation to faith is amazing. And it actually is what he said he wanted to do in the very first covenant. When God issues covenants with Noah and then with Moses and he extends it in Abraham and he extends it to David, what does he say? He says, every nation will be blessed through you. Israel, you're supposed to be the worshipers of God that bring every other nation into faith. But they never did it. They never did it. So, Next, we have, we end the seven seals with the day of the Lord. This is a great and terrible thing. And then John, uh, out of that seventh seal comes these seven trumpets. They come out of the seventh seal and again reminds us of the Exodus, uh, the Exodus story. Um, and so we're going to pay attention, um, to this verse, Revelation 9 20. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent. Okay, so the four trumpets happen. They're tied to the, to the 10 plagues of uh, Exodus. And what happened in the story of Exodus? These 10 plagues come, right. Did the, did the people of Egypt and did Pharaoh repent and turn to God? Do you know the answer? <laughs> this is gonna be uncomfortable. Uh, Good job, Uh, Lisa, I think that was you. Uh, No, the answer is no. Uh, Lisa helps out in our kids' uh, ministry, so she knows the answer to that uh, question. So volunteer in kids' ministry, you'll learn answers to questions. Uh, So God sends the ten plagues on on Egypt and on Pharaoh in particular, and he doesn't repent. The scripture says he hardens his heart, and so he actively fights against God. So we have these first four trumpets. There's all these plagues. They come after the first um, for the horses that bring all these things onto the earth, but the people don't repent. They don't turn to God. And it's, it's important because it, it tells us uh, this, that the fear of being killed isn't enough to cause people to repent. Here's an example. Somebody's sick and goes into the hospital and, and they're, let's say, a smoker. Or, or a- alcoholic. And they go to the doctor and they're in terrible shape. And the doctor says, look, you're going to die if you don't stop smoking or you don't stop drinking. Nine times out of 10, what happens? We'll stop for a little bit. <laughs> we'll stop till we get out of the hospital, right? Because you can't do that stuff in the hospital. Once we get out, we go right back to it. The fear of death does not bring us to repentance. I want you to hold on to this thought because look, in chapter 10, John again, he's going through the seven trumpets and then he, he pauses and he gives us this aside. He says, okay, this trumpets are happening. There's all this action, but I want you to see what's happening here. And so John sees more angels, seven uh, different angels doing other things. Um, and he's given the unsealed scroll of the lamb. So the first seven seals, the first set of sevens, or the seven seals, the scroll of the lamb is now open and it can be, it can be read. Now we understand how God is going to bring heaven and humanity into unity. And so John is given that scroll that only the lamb could open and he's told to eat it, which is weird. 
Um, but it goes back to Ezekiel. The Jewish people would have understood this is exactly what Ezekiel was told to do. He was told to eat the scroll, and in his mouth it would taste good. So as he read the scroll, as he ate it, um, the words of God would sound good to him. They would feel good to him. But when they got to his stomach, it would, it would be bitter. It would make, him, would make him sick. Why? Because what God is saying is, look, I'm going to give you my word, and then you're to regurgitate that word to other people. You're to tell other people what I'm talking about, and they are not going to like it. It's going to make you sick. So, people get hung up in, in these uh, chapters 6 to 11, and really in every chapter in the rest of the book of, of Revelation. They get hung up in particular because John talks about the temple in this kind of aside as he leaves the seven trumpets. He talks about the temple, and it sounds like the temple of God is going to be destroyed. Like there's people inside the temple proper and, and they're God's people and they're protected and, and he's watching over them. But in the outer courts of the temple, the nations come in and they trample the temple and, 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 and people. And so there's persecution, there's harm, there's all this stuff happening. Well, the outer courts of the temple were still not to be occupied by anybody but Jews. And, and so what we're seeing is other people are forcing their way into the kingdom and they're doing harm to God's uh, people. But I don't think John is talking about the temple proper, like the temple in Jerusalem, Solomon's temple. I don't think he's talking about that. I think he's talking about what the prophets and what the New Testament writers um, t talked about when they used the word temple. And what they were talking about was the church, the new temple is the church of Jesus Christ, people who follow Jesus and who, who love him. You and I are the new temple. We're built together with bricks and we become this temple to God, this living thing as we follow God and more people come and the temple just gets bigger and, and bigger. And so we come away from this, um, uh, uh, with this story with the assurance that um, what appears to be a physical defeat, the, the temple being destroyed, cannot take away our eternal victory in Jesus. That's really what I think John is saying in this chapter, is that, look, even though it seems like the temple is destroyed, even though they take our Bibles, they stop our worship, they do all this stuff, we will endure because we have a God that is powerful and able to protect us and to lead us to victory. And even if we die, we get to go to heaven. We get to be with God. We get to be in this perfect unity. And so what is there to see? Okay, so we have the temple. And then John talks about these two witnesses. Have you heard about the two witnesses? Heard anybody talk about that? These two witnesses come from God. They just appear. And there's lots of debate and talk about who are the two witnesses. Some people think it's Elijah and Moses. Uh, some people think maybe John the Baptist. Maybe Jesus is coming back. There's all kinds of ideas about the two um, witnesses. But, but here's the important thing. The witnesses come back and they're trying to get people to repent. And then all of a sudden, remember John's still in his aside. He's not talking about the seven trumpets anymore. These two witnesses come, and then all of a sudden, out of the abyss, this beast comes. And it's the beast from Daniel. This beast comes, and he kills the two witnesses. And they're dead for three and a half days. You, you know anybody else was dead for three days? Um, anyway, after three and a half days, they come back to life. And then this really cool thing happens. But I, I want to I make sure... Um, we get this because here's what it says in Revelation uh, chapter 11. Uh, these are the two, he's talking about the witnesses. These are the two olive trees and 
two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Chapter 1, Jesus holds the seven stars in his hand, and he walks among what? Lampstands. And what does Jesus say the lampstands represent? Churches. Churches. John tells us the two witnesses that come are not people. They're churches. And these two churches are going to stand up to the oppression of whatever nation, whatever kingdom is, is there at the present time. Um, it's likely that the witnesses are actually symbols of followers of Jesus who take up where Moses and Elijah and John left off, pointing out injustice, standing up to opposition, standing up to powerful people and powerful governments, even in the face of their own death. The beast appears, kills the witnesses. Three days later, God brings them back to life. And at this point, people do repent. Look at Revelation eleven thirteen. At that hour, there was a great earthquake. Okay, this is... This is the end. This is the sixth trumpet. The day of the Lord is coming. And the tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. And the rest were terrified. And what? They gave glory to the God of heaven. They repented. They worshiped God. Okay, let's um, bring this home because I've thrown a lot of stuff at you. Uh, This is why it's helpful if you read what we're going to talk about in the next week before you come on Sunday. Because then you'll have framework reference there. So God's warning judgments through the seals and through the trumpets did not generate repentance. Why? Because the fear of of being killed doesn't cause us to repent. Just like the hearts of people of Babylon and Egypt were hardened, our hearts are hardened when we're faced with with death. We'd be like, I don't care. I'm going to do what I want to do. Nobody can tell me what to do. But the lamb, Jesus, how did he conquer? How did he get victory? How did he overcome his enemies? It wasn't with might. It wasn't with power. But he loved them. And he loved them enough to die for them. And the message of the lamb's scroll reveals the mission of his army, the church. And I like the way that Tim Mackey puts it. He says this, God's kingdom will be revealed when the nations see the church, you and I, imitating the loving sacrifice of the lamb, not killing our enemies, but dying for them. Not slaughtering those who don't believe, but serving them. It is God's mercy shown through Jesus' followers that bring the nations to repentance. That really is the story of of Revelation 6 to 11. This is the message of the open scroll. And John placed this message at the very center of the book of Revelation. I think that's pretty cool. And so here's what I want you to get. Most people won't repent even in the face of being killed, but they will repent when faced with kindness. Fear causes us to stiffen up. We're afraid when somebody's coming at us, when we're going to be attacked, we, we kind of pull ourselves up and we go, no, 
I'm going to stand. I'm going to get the victory. But kindness is not what we expect in those moments. And so instead of stiffening up, we begin to listen up. Like, wait a minute, this is different. This is not what I expected. You're a Christian and I expected you to hate me for my beliefs, but what I'm getting is kindness from you and I don't know how to react to that. Let me give you a real world example. This last week, SCOTUS determined that the Constitution does not address the issue of abortion. And and so um, it should have never been heard as an argument before the Supreme Court. Uh, For or against, it doesn't matter. Basically what they said is, this should have never come. This is a political issue. It should have never come before the Supreme Court. And in effect, what they did was erase Roe v. Wade. Now, if you've been on social media um, in the last few days, the last uh, 36 or 72 hours or, or so, Um, you know that there are strongly, strongly held opinions on both sides. And and you you can't, like the lines are blurred anymore. You can't anymore say, look, if you're a follower of Jesus, you have to be pro-life. If you're not, you have to be pro-life. Like the lines are blurred. You never know what side somebody is going to be on. As followers of Jesus, I believe personally that we should always err on the side of life. We should always support life, no matter what. We were made in the image of God. I think every life is sacred. I think every life is important. And I think we should do everything that we can to support life, to encourage life, um, to raise life up in people. And it's my personal opinion that this last week, life won. However, when facing direct opposition, what do we do? especially if we feel that we're being attacked. (laughs) Put our buffer up, we get our shield, we protect ourselves, we go on the attack. And so um, we know that because if you offer any pushback at all to somebody who doesn't agree with you, they come after you with everything. They're like, whoa, wait a minute. Like, you can share your opinion, I can share my opinion, but, you know, apparently that doesn't work uh, anymore. Because we stiffen up and we dig in when we feel attacked. But when we are faced with kindness, it's a different story. I hope that in the coming years, children who might have otherwise been aborted find a cure for cancer and end world hunger and do more to bring us together as a nation and as a world and as a people than any other generation before. And I hope that no matter what hot button topic of the day comes down the pike next, the followers of Jesus will always act and will always speak with kindness first. I think this is the message of Revelation 6 to 11. We're to remember that God is more powerful than any Supreme Court decision, than any nation, than any government, than any ruler, than anything. And when we're afraid, we can go to him because he is a strong tower and he is a foundation and he will never be shaken or moved. And because we have that promise and that hope, we can stand up in the face of opposition. We can be kind even when we don't agree or we know somebody doesn't agree with us. And through that kindness, through loving our enemies and serving them or dying for them, 
think about that concept. Dying for somebody who doesn't agree with you. By doing that, by living out in kindness, that's how we actually turn hearts around. It's not by pointing fingers and telling them you're going to hell. When God comes, because that's how some people read Revelation, God comes, you're getting it, buddy, and I'll be there, like clapping, right? Because you're wrong and I'm right. That's not what the message in the story is about. It's about following the lamb even to dying for our enemies in the hope that they might come to faith and have the same eternal promise that we do. Let's pray. God, thanks again for this day and this time. Thank you for revelation. As difficult as it is sometimes for us to understand, we thank you for it and the opportunity to dig into it and, and, and look at it and apply it to our lives today. Um, and so just thank you for uh, this opportunity and this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me tell you a couple things. Next week, we're gonna look at Revelation uh, chapters 12 to 14. John takes a break from the series of sevens and he talks about a whole bunch of signs. And so uh, these signs are gonna explore the message of the open scroll of the Lamb. So the seven seals have been opened, now the scroll is open, we know what it contains. And we're gonna look at that in greater depth. So chapter 12 is the cosmic battle. Chapter 13 is the earthly battle. And then chapter 14 talks about the Lord's army and, and judgment. And so there's big stuff happening. There's crazy stuff happening. A lot of stuff to um, dig through. So chapter 12 to 14 next week.